right. Good morning, church. It's overcast. The Cardinals are playing at 10 o'clock. I told Jill, well, at least you and I will be in church this morning. It's great to see you all. Uh, listen, if it's your first time, a special welcome to you. I would love to have the opportunity to get to know you. If you have a couple minutes right after the service, I'm going to be hanging out right down here in the front. Would love, love, love the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been discussing the future vision of Illuminate, and there are three words we use to describe it, bigger, smaller, deeper. Two weeks ago, we talked about what we meant by using the word bigger. We're talking about expanding our influence for the kingdom of God. Jesus made a promise in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I will build my church. Therefore, we would expect the church to grow, and by God's grace, he is adding to our numbers. We want to be able to accommodate all those that God brings across our door. But as the church grows, it's kind of a weird thing that happens. You'd think with more people coming, it would be easier to get connected. But in fact, the opposite ends up being true. With more people coming, it gives people the opportunity to become more anonymous. You kind of come, you listen, then you leave. You can get lost in the crowd. Uh, that's why we, we use the word smaller. As we grow in number, we actually want to grow smaller. That is to say, we want to get people engaging in close-knit community. The scripture talks a lot about the one another's, right? Love one another, pray for one another, care for one another, confess your sins to one another. That doesn't happen apart from being in a close-knit, gospel-centered community. So I'm super happy to say that over the last two weeks, we've had over 200 people who were not previously engaged with us in small groups now are in small groups. If you are not, yeah, you can get excited for that. If you're not, listen, we're going to make it super easy for you. If you're not involved in a small group, all you have to do is show up tonight. We've got childcare provided. You'll join a bunch of other people in the room who are taking what's big, breaking it down into something smaller. Why? Because Jesus gave us this, he gave us this commission. He gave us our marching orders. Uh, he calls us to do something. This call to do something is actually based on a commitment to be something. So as Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, he wants to, he wants to leave his disciples with some parting words. What would they be? What, this is like, you know, as he's going to the Father, in his mind and heart, there's some really important things that he wants to communicate to them. Now, of all the things that Jesus could say, what does he want to leave them with? We get this in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go, or more accurately, as you are going, wherever God has you in life, make disciples of all nations, all people. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And if you read through the Gospels, Jesus has about four hours worth of teaching. That's it. Think about that for a second. He's got about four hours worth of teaching. And yet in these four hours, they would leave the most profound impact on the, on the world that the world has ever known. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, it says, even though I'm not going to be with you physically anymore, I am with you always to the end of the age. Simply put, you see, if, we, we, if, if, the, if the goal in life is to be a disciple and to make disciples, then here's the challenge. 
Do we even understand what it is? Do we understand what it means to be a disciple? Simply put, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. You've heard me say many times, the ancient rabbis had a saying, a good disciple is covered in the dust of the rabbi's feet, meaning wherever the rabbi goes, the disciple is right behind him. Now, there's a really interesting Greek word used to describe disciple. It's the Greek word methetos. It's actually used 265 times throughout the New Testament. Jesus used that word only eight times. Of those eight times, he used it in a, follow this now, he used it in a conditional sense seven times, meaning you are my disciple if you do these things. Unless these standards are met, no one can consider himself or herself a disciple of Jesus. Now, that might be new information to you. The words surrounding salvation, when a person comes to faith in Christ, you hear words like free, gift, whosoever. The words surrounding disciple are different. Costly, commitment, suffering. Seven times, Jesus says, you are my disciple if. I always think it's best to let Jesus speak for himself. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, the Apostle Paul gives you his personal purpose statement. He says, I can tell you why God put me on this planet. He says, him, referring to Jesus, we proclaim. We tell people about Jesus. And we warn everyone and we teach everyone with all wisdom, that would be the wisdom that comes to them from God, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Discipleship is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's maturity. Bigger, smaller, deeper. That's the end goal. Many, many Christians, after having received Jesus, Understanding that, yeah, I, there's this serious dysfunction between me and, my, and the God who created me. One of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible is that the world is jacked up, and the reason why is because men and women are selfish. That's the root cause of all the evils in this world. Because God is holy and just, he can't turn a blind eye to all the bad stuff that we do, the things that hurt ourselves and hurt others. God is just. He, can't, he just can't ignore that stuff. It has to be dealt with. The challenge is a really high price to pay. This tells you just how serious sin is to God. We treat it kind of lightly, but the scriptures say that the wages of sin is death. People ask, well, why did Jesus have to die? See, this is the thing that separates Jesus from all other faith leaders. God had skin in the game. Jesus died taking on himself the wage that your sin and my sin incurred so that the dysfunction that was there between us and God is now removed. And for many Christians, that's kind of where it ends. And for many Christians, it's sort of this, um, it's a worldview and a faith that doesn't really cost them much. Let me say it again. It's a worldview and a faith system that doesn't really cost them much of anything. And so what we're about to read are some of the most difficult statements that have come out of Jesus' mouth. 
they're really hard. And you'll see that in, in a lot of churches, these statements aren't even spoken to because they're meaty. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You're going to be swimming in the deep end of the pool, all right? Bigger, smaller, deeper. The ultimate goal, Jesus told us, make disciples. We've got to understand what a disciple is. We ask ourselves the question, am I a disciple? Okay, now that I'm, I, I'm a, it's a commitment to be something, now, now what follows is a commitment to do something, to make disciples. So here's the first one. Jesus begins with this, Luke chapter 14. You know what, before I share this, it's important. Let me give you some background context. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds at least 5,000 people. You might be familiar with that story. What you're probably not familiar with is what happens the next day. The crowds return. See, everybody loves these, these stories about Jesus feeding people and healing people. But what they miss is the outcome. Because there's this moment the next day, all right? The next day, the crowd returns. And Jesus confronts them. Jesus did not care about popularity. His popularity is like at an all-time high. The crowds form once again around Jesus. He just gave them a free meal the day before. And back in the day, that was kind of a big deal. Jesus says to them, the only reason why you've returned is because you got something from me. You got a free lunch. And then he presses in. He says, what you should be most concerned about is a diet that will lead you to eternal life. And then he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood participates with me. Because if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Now, now, a lot can change in 24 hours. The text literally says that those who were with him, after hearing Jesus say this, now by the way, Jesus isn't a cannibal, okay? What he's saying is, you take my life up into yours. This isn't about getting a free meal. This isn't about making your life more convenient. What this is about is you following in my footsteps, being covered in my dust. And here's what that, that's going to cost you. So take my life, eat my flesh, drink my blood, up into yours. That's what he's saying. And when the crowd hears this, the text tells us, see ya. I was down for the supernatural stuff. That was really cool. But the free meal was the best part. We're back. Wait, what? You're calling us to something deeper? No, we just wanted our, our stomachs to be filled. I'm not interested in what will feed my soul. I'm out. And many of them leave him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now all of these metaphors begin to make sense. Take my life up into yours. In Luke chapter 14, there's another crowd that gathers around Jesus. And once again, his popularity is, is very, very high. Uh, most wanted to be dazzled by his message. And once again to this crowd, Jesus begins to thin out the herd in about three sentences. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, some of you, depending on the home you came from, you're like, no problem, Jesus. No problem. Got this one down. Easy. But think about what he's saying. It's not as if Jesus is saying, you need to hate that sin that has enslaved you. No problem. Got it down. No, what he's saying is, you have to hate the things that you love the most. You know what it means to hate something? It describes an intense and passionate dislike. What is he, it's kind of like, Jesus, are you having a bad day? You know, like, did someone cut you off in traffic? I mean, are you, this is a, hate? Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Hyperbole is an overstatement for the purpose of emphasis. He's going to contrast two things to make a sharp point. Jesus' overarching message is one of love. What's he talking about? What he's saying is this. Love me above all others. In fact, love me to the degree that all other human loves that you have seem as hatred in comparison. Your affection for me should be so far and above the affection you have for any person or anything on this earth, it makes those earthly loves for those earthly things seem like hatred in comparison. That's the sharp contrast that he's building. So uh, this, is, this is rather challenging. Um, why would he say something like this? Well, because there's this reality, and some of you have already experienced it. Jesus is addressing the fact that personal relationships can often conflict with the call to discipleship. And even these relationships that we value the most. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus calls a man to follow him. And in what is the greatest missed opportunity of all time, the man says, let me go bury my father, then I'll join you. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, Jesus, now isn't a super convenient time. Appreciate the offer, but I've got a lot of other stuff going on in my life that I need to take care of. When my parents get older, when they die, then I'll be more freed up. Then you come and you knock on my door then, all right? And then we'll talk. And Jesus responds by saying, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, you follow me. And it doesn't seem that the man responds. We, we, we don't know. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've jokingly said, this is the Christmas card that I want to see. Because at Christmas time, one of the more popular cards has something that says, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's actually a misinterpretation of what the text actually says. It says, peace on earth upon those with whom the favor of God rests. In other words, you can't have peace on this earth until you have God's favor upon you. It's not peace between men. It's peace between you and the God who created you. That's why Jesus came. You get that relationship right, and then you have a chance at peace on earth. But it starts with making peace with God. 
Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The whole in-law thing, you're like, that's not too challenging. Um, in other words, sometimes the people you love the most will not want you to do what Jesus is calling you to do. This happened to me. When I decided to go into pastoral ministry, I had people who really, really cared about me. They're like, are you sure you want to do that? Are you, are you sure you want to do that? I don't know. That, that seems like maybe a little bit of a waste. Um, maybe you could do something a little bit more productive. It's like when my... <laughs> I've told you a story about my, my next-door neighbor, Bob. I love this guy. He, he's, he's, not, he, he's not saved yet. God's definitely doing something in his life. It's completely and totally unchurched. He's from England. And uh, I, uh, when we first met each other, he said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And, and he's like, yeah, but what do you do? And I... <laughs> And so I was, you know, I was just saying, well, you know, part of my job as a pastor is a shepherd, you know, I kind of lead the, the people of God. And he's like, yeah, but like, what do you do? You know, in, in other words, in his mind, he's like, what do you produce? The, sometimes, and I found this to be true, when you choose harmony with God, the conflict that I experienced with others ultimately led to the awareness of their need to find harmony with God. And I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, everything is safe which we commit to God, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. And that includes your life. All right, next verse, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. Bear his own cross, Come after me, cannot be my disciple. He repeated this way in Luke chapter 9. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So I think probably the greatest barrier in becoming a disciple is the preoccupation that we have with ourselves. And we live in a society and a culture that is absolutely gaslit. You are absolutely encouraged to, uh, to pursue your own selfish uh, agendas and ways and means. And, you know, th there's a lot of good that can come about as, as a result of social media, but social media just it absolutely gaslights and fuels these kinds of things because the reality is this. You know, we're always projecting the highlight reel. We're always projecting the best of. It's always image control. And what that really amounts to is a, a, this kind of, in some ways, it's like a form of narcissism. Because what we're saying is, look at how awesome I am, and really, uh, I'm, I'm in love with myself. Because I'm going to keep projecting my image to you, even though you're not really asking. But see, there's something that happens within me that makes me fulfilled the more I, I center on myself. But you know, in the end, it, it just feels so empty. The latest research now, right, shows us that Facebook, Twitter, all of these things, turns out to be really damaging, especially for youth. This is Generation Z, this is a generation that knows, perhaps more than any other, that the world is messed up because they're constantly being exposed to it. The challenge is no one is giving them a solution. That's why Gen Z has been, has been uh, determined to be the most hopeless generation of all time. They see the problems in the world. They're just not being given any answers. 
So we become a self-obsessed society. You know what the Bible doesn't say? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you know what would be great? You know what would make the world a better place? If people just love themselves more. Actually, the Bible says the opposite. If people would think about themselves less and think about others more, then the world would be a better place. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. It's a, it's a countercultural message for us in America. Um, a while ago, I saw a license plate that read self-love, and then next to it was a Christian symbol. My head, like, exploded. Like, like. <laughs> to deny something is, is to disdain it, to disown it, to forfeit it. That, that's, that's a crazy message. And then Jesus used this radical symbol to press the point home. He said, you know the cross? And in the day, people are like, uh-huh, really scary, horrific, instrument of torture, pain, and death. Take yours up every day. In other words, what he's saying is, sacrifice your selfish desires on the altar. You know, the Apostle Paul picks up on this, and he says, present yourself as a living what? Sacrifice. It's like every day you wake up, and you crawl on that altar, and you put to death your selfish desires, your fleshly desires, all of the things that are within us naturally. Bearing your cross means to deny yourself, die, your, die to yourself. I love, I love Tozer's words. They're really insightful again. He says, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, then he will remain on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ alone is the one who does all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul, and we will wear our little tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To renounce is to surrender. It's literally saying goodbye. So the, there's only one way that this works, and that is until you and I realize that everything we have belongs to Jesus, we're going we're gonna to possess it. Rather than steward it, we're going to possess it. And watch this now. The more you possess things, the more those things possess you. I love Jesus. Is so, he's such a brilliant teacher. He would put things in such a paradoxical way. It, it caused people to think. The challenge for most of us in life, as we start, it's like, you know what? I don't have very much stuff in life. And that kind of makes me feel insecure. So as you get older, you start acquiring a few more things. And you think, okay, cool. Now I've got some stuff. <sighs> right, I've got some security. Uh-oh. I can't lose this stuff. <laughs> now that I've acquired it all, 
I can't lose it because if I lose it, I'm going to be really anxious. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus has this encounter with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And the rich young ruler is really excited. He's like, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's actually the wrong question because it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. But Jesus is like, all right, how about this? You know the commandments, right? Um, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't worship other gods, uh, don't pursue your neighbor's wife. You know, you know the commandments, right? Uh, and, and the young ruler says, yeah. He's, he's like, I've been keeping all of those commandments since I was young, right? I'm good. And then Jesus says, cool. Just one thing that you lack. Sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And the rich young guy goes, thanks. Jesus isn't saying that you have to take a vow of poverty and sell everything that you have in order to be his disciple. What he's pressing in on is that young man's idol and his God. And if it was something else, he would have asked for that too. See, that, that's, this is it, right? Now, now it's, getting a little, it's getting a little uncomfortable because, it's, as it has been said, our hearts are like little idol-making factories. And even when we think we've got things covered, Jesus presses, presses in. He says, no, there, there's one other little thing here that's going on in your life. It could be this relationship. So don't think that I came to bring peace to all your relationships. It could be some possession that you have. Hey, you need to renounce it. See, the heart of the Christian message is faith. That is trusting in Jesus. There are all these little things where we say, okay, Jesus, I'll trust. How about 20%? 20%. Is that good? Okay, maybe 30%. And Jesus is not asking if we'll commit a percentage. He's asking for everything. Billy Graham said, salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have which means we're going to have to count the cost. And this is what Jesus says next, very next verse, Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? You've got to think it through, what it's going to take to be successful, whether he has enough to complete it. Point is illustrated in Luke chapter 9. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy's got a lot of enthusiasm. Jesus doesn't call him. He takes the initiative. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, this is a crazy response. Hey, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It, it, he, the guy doesn't wait to be called. He's super excited. He's like, there's Jesus. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, cool, we're going to be homeless. The foxes have a place to stay. The birds have their nests. We're not certain where we're going to spend the night. Are you still down with it? Man, that's trust. This guy didn't know what lay in his future, but Jesus did. And essentially he's saying, whatever would dull your desire or quench your thirst for me, whatever makes the world more attractive to you, those things are going to be a distraction. So you got to sit down, and you really have to prayerfully consider, what is it going to cost me? So let's take a couple of minutes and do that now. What might the call to discipleship cost you? 
it might cost you some relationships. So when I began taking my faith seriously, I was 17 years old, I was in high school, and I lost some friends. Simply because I was no longer to participate in the things that they did. You know what's interesting? As time went by, some of those same people reached out to me, and they would secretly tell me, I wish I had the courage to make the decisions you made. I wish I had the convictions you had. You know, and at the time, being 17 years old, you know, your friends kind of are, are like everything to you, and that was a really, really hard thing in my life. But Jesus said, if you give up anything in my name, I'll give it back to you a hundredfold. And what I realized was, in the Christian community, I had true friends. See, I didn't really even know what friends were until I became a Christian. And then God surrounded me with people who really did care about me and who wanted to act in my best interest. Uh, it, it might be that you have to give up some of the stuff that you really cherish right now that in the end is actually robbing you of your life. What are those things? Well, could be your ego. It could be your greed. It could be your desire to look at seductive images that have completely and totally consumed you. No disciple has a pet peeve sin. No part of that closet in your life is not open for God to inhabit. You might have to pay the price for the plans that you have for your life. Uh, early on when I was told by some that to go into full-time ministry would be a waste of who I am, that was really challenging for me. But I can tell you this, there is no other life that I would rather live than the life that I'm leading now, period. By the world's standards, I may not be the most successful guy, I'm not the wealthiest, I'm not the best looking, I'm not the most popular. There is not another individual on this planet whose life I would trade mine for. So why would you want to be a disciple? Well, number one, because Jesus is worthy. One of the titles for Jesus, the Greek word kurios, which means one who is worthy of being served. What makes him worthy? He died for you. Anybody else do that for you? No, sets him apart. He's worthy. But secondly, God always blesses the greatest likeness to his son, Jesus Christ. The reason why you're confused, lost, hurting, desperate, the reason why you have so much drama in your life, the reason why you're distracted, the reason why for so, at sometimes at some point you have so much anxiety, even depression, no purpose, no meaning. Following in the footsteps of Jesus completely and totally changes that. So I'm going to end our time by having you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to prepare ourselves for communion, the Lord's Supper. There's probably no better way of committing ourselves to a life of discipleship than by remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. As I said, he is worthy. But I'm just going to ask you to pray a simple prayer. Number one, if you haven't come to faith in Jesus, that's where it begins. You simply tell God, I need it. I recognize that 
I do things, say things, my attitude, it hurts other people, hurts myself, separates me from you. But Jesus died to forgive me of all of that. That's where discipleship begins. That's the first step. If you haven't made that decision, make that decision. If you do make that decision, it's just a simple prayer. You, simply say, you just simply speak those words to God. Come talk to me if you've made that decision. I would love to tell you more about it. Anybody that's on the stage would love to talk with you as well. And for those who now are perhaps for the first time understanding the call to discipleship, it does feel uncomfortable, but in the best possible way. This moment and this time, you are not here by accident. God is calling you to something higher. God is calling you to something deeper, and your life is about to change. So, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to speak to your people. God, lead us in all things. God, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing here. And this morning, Lord, I know it's been extremely challenging, but these are the good words of Jesus, and they always do lead to life. I pray that even this message this morning, as it goes forth, even beyond these walls, Lord, people's hearts and minds would be transformed. Lord, that they would take up their own cross, denying themselves, following in your footsteps, God, so that we can experience your hand of blessing. Ultimately, in the end, we've been asking the question, God, what do you want to do in me? God, what do you want to do through me? The calling is clear. God, may we respond in faith, trusting in you, handing it all over to you. This is it. You know, it's it. This is the moment. Been holding on to it for too long. Now's the time, just giving it up. For your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.